Turn to Genesis chapter 7. Now again, I want to remind you, um, we're in a part of God's Word um, that is historical, it's accurate, uh, it is very specific in the reason that the Holy Spirit authored these words. Uh, It contains within it basic scientific evidence of how God accomplished what he accomplished but it does not tell us everything and so when we talk about earth's history and we talk about uh, how the earth is is shaped currently we're looking at the evidence that we see today that evidence we believe because god's word says so has been altered by a catastrophic event that event is the flood of noah and so this particular passage because we cover the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we cover it chapter and verse, uh, is largely informational. It contains within it uh, things that we ought to be able to take and and begin to examine the world around us and see if the world that we see has evidence of these things actually occurring. And so we're going to do that, and we need to continue to do that until we run through this passage. So I invite you to bear with me. I will keep the science on the side that I think most can pick it up. Uh, If you can't, you can always email me questions, which people do all the time, so I do my best to try and respond to all of them. Uh, But this flood that now we're looking at, we're in the the midst of it, uh, is a worldwide catastrophic event. And so we're going to look tonight at some of those theories that have been floated to try and explain how Perhaps these things uh, occurred without a global flood, perhaps even a local flood. I think that's going to be very clear that can't happen. But we also have to look at why people do not want to believe that this is scientifically relevant. And the reason that's important is if you can begin with a basic assumption that God does not exist, and then you can come up with a theory that in essence supports your assumption that God does not exist, in that case, you, you may well have given yourself a reason to not believe in God. And that theory is the theory of evolution. Charles Darwin, responsible for it, that theory, and again I want to make it very clear, there is only a theory called the theory of evolution. It is not a proven scientific fact. It is a theory. That means it is a set of things that are suppositions that people put forth and they seek evidence to prove what it is they believe that supposition to be. And so we're going to look at alternate theories for how the world got here as we look at the flood and how it got shaped. But remember empirical evidence to prove either the creation of the world by God's hand or what others would claim would be this random chance process is over eons, billions of years, there is no empirical scientific evidence that conclusively proves either side. And the reason I want to make that clear is we find Christians often debating with non-Christians on the basis of science and that science is not empirical evidence, that science is interpretation of the data that we currently see. And so all we're really talking about is how do you interpret it? 
How do you look at the world that's around you? And so we'll pick up tonight in verse 17 here in Genesis 7 and the third installment of the flood of Noah. And so would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the word that was spoken through the prophets, recorded, God, for our enrichment and growth. And we believe that the whole word, all of the word, your word, the Bible, is true. And so, God, we pray that you'd help us to interpret these verses correctly. Lord, to them, then apply them correctly. And, God, that you would give us understanding and ears to hear, Lord, what your Spirit would say to your church tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 17 here in Genesis 7, and we'll take down to verse 24. And, and now the flood was on the earth for 40 days. An important piece of factual evidence. Remember, we believe this to be an eyewitness account. It has every indication that it is an eyewitness account, judging from the way these sentences are constructed, the original language. In other words, somebody is giving us an account of what they saw. They were there, and it was recorded and then passed down almost assuredly orally, uh, if not transmitted in some way, shape, or form in, in a written form. Could have been pictographs, could have been all kinds of things. We don't know, uh, but we do know this. The way these sentences are constructed, somebody saw this. And the waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth, and the waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And so now you have this breaking up of the fountains of the deep, the releasing of the waters that's underneath the earth in aquifers, pressurized by this incredible engine that is the core of the earth, forcing magma up into the subsurface layers underneath the crust of the earth. So between where we stand and roughly seven miles below the surface, that generally is solid. Below that, almost around the globe, as is evidenced by the fact that you see volcanoes, uh, we happen to live on the Pacific Ring of Fire, and so if you uh, go down through Mexico and down into Central America and head down into the northern part of South America, down along the Andes, or if you were to travel from here up through the Sierra Nevadas and finally into the Cascades and all the way out into the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, wrap all the way around through the Kamchatka Peninsula and finally make your way down through Korea and Japan, you're going to find something uh, that is extremely consistent, and that is there are volcanoes all along that route. Modern science of plate tectonics would say that those are the evidence of two plates colliding. As those plates collide, uh, there is usually an abduction or subduction. One of the plates goes underneath the other, and in the process, breaks open the crust, which allows magna, magma to come up to the surface, and you have a volcano. And the reason this is important is, is it scientifically plausible that God in this time past began to put into motion those things which we currently see, and then while he's doing that, he reshapes the surface of the earth as it was then and makes it look as it is now. And that's the key component of all this. And I'm going to show you a couple of things tonight. And I, I believe that what we see supports a theory of that nature. Notice where it continues. And the waters prevailed exceedingly 
on the earth. And all of the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. And so when you think of this flood, you, you begin to look at some wording here that becomes very clear that God is talking about the surface of the earth being completely covered with water. And we'll look at some of the biblical reasons in a moment, and then we'll look at the scientific reasons why it appears that this must be so. The waters prevailed to 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, cattle, beasts, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man. Now remember that we know the reason for the destruction of the earth. God sees the heart, the intent of man, that it's continually evil. He tells mankind, look, this is what I'm going to do. You have an option. You can receive grace by entering into the ark. You can help Noah with the project, receive and believe. But he basically says there's only one way that's to be covered, uh, which that word kafar, that's what it means. That's the covering of the ark itself. And so you can either be covered or you can die. And so this account says that anyone who is not inside the ark dies. That was God's intent. And so when you think about it, God has now intended that in fact these particular events would happen exactly as we see them now. And so he says, in all, in all whose nostrils was the breath of life, of the spirit of life, excuse me, and all that was on dry land died. So if there is a place that someone could go and escape this flood, you instantaneously would realize that animals could have migrated to there, man could have migrated to there, people could have made their way to dry land. So it appears that the only reasonable answer in taking the Bible for what it says is that the entire surface of the earth was covered with water. And the reason that that's important is you either believe what Scripture says here or you have to come up with some alternate theory that provides some other way to explain what is very clear here in the Hebrew language in the text of Genesis 7. And so he destroyed all the living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping thing and bird of the air. And the reason the birds of the air were destroyed, remember, they can't stay in the air forever. Somebody asked me this one time, well, couldn't they just, you know, land on, you know, bark or whatever and float? And sure, they could for a while. But you have to remember the nature of the catastrophism that we're seeing here. This is not some placid lake where things are just kind of bobbing on the surface and gently floating along. This is utter chaos, and the world is in complete upheaval. And so the waters are churning, they're full of sediment, they're full of all kinds of floating debris, and eventually, if you know anything about debris that floats in a lake for any period of time, if it is in fact uh, something that, that we would call organic material, plant life, it eventually will become waterlogged, and it does what? It thinks. It doesn't float forever. And so animal life would have been destroyed. There would have also been no food source uh, up on the surface of that water, even if there were birds landing on sticks and floating around in all of the debris. And so all animal life, in essence, is destroyed except for what's in the ark. And they were destroyed from the earth. And notice again, it's using very specific language here. So from the earth means that in the totality of the earth, there is nothing left. 
Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. And so the flood itself, this breaking up of the fountains of the deep, and then the consequential amounts of rainfall that continue, total, continue for 150 days. And so let's look at some of the textual reasons why I believe that this flood was not only a global flood, but it was a global catastrophic flood. It was not something that we could look at and say, hey, this might have happened for a week, but it didn't last any longer than that. Number one, notice that the waters covered the high hills. They covered the totality of those things which we would call uh, the, the highest of hills, and it also covered the mountains. So hills and mountains are actually the exact same word uh, in the Hebrew language. So in English, we're making a distinction. In the Greek language, it's actually a Hebrew parallelism. In other words, for, in, in a, for inference and, and for a, a sense that this is, we want you to note this, God has the writers say that mountains, hills, no matter what you call them, were completely covered. The second thing is that those waters were overwhelmingly mighty. They, they weren't kind of like a gentle rainfall that went into a creek bed that eventually caused some type of a flash flood. They literally overwhelmed the surface of the earth. And so it, it wasn't something that was related to geography. You see, when we look at flooding today, we generally associate it with geography. That's why uh, we who live here in Southern California normally don't possess flood insurance. Why is that? Uh, because where we live in Southern California, there are almost zero flowing rivers still. We've dammed almost all of them up. And so there's only one free-flowing river left here in Southern California. It actually runs through the middle of Camp Pendleton. It's the Santa Margarita River. It's the only river that is undammed in all of Southern California. And, and so we've kind of taken some of these things and we've, we've stopped them from flowing in their natural courses now imagine that the earth is largely flat. And I don't mean flat as in you could fall off the edge. I mean as in geographically, not a lot of mountainous terrain. You see, if you're going to create an idyllic environment for Adam and Eve to live on, uh, you're not necessarily going to want mountains that they have to work really hard to get over. So there'll be some hills. And so you have the words here translated mountains and hills. There are some of them, but they are nowhere near uh, the height that we see today. Notice it also says that those same mountains are under the whole heaven. In other words, they're, they're inundated. They're covered with water up to 15 cubits, so 15 times 18 inches. You're talking somewhere around 23, 24 feet worth of water falls on flat ground. And so as the ground begins to move, uh, these waters are all also going to shift into to areas to, that would be deeper than others. And so you, you begin to kind of get the picture that God is setting up a hydrologic event here so that ultimately when he begins to move plates around and thrust up mountains and do all those kind of things, that that's when there becomes some localized deepening of these waters. But it happens at God's hand. It isn't that there are gigantic mountains there that need to be covered uh, because the Hebrew here means that they were simply swamped. It, it is a Hebrew word, kasah, and it, and it means to flow up and over. So the water's moving. So we kind of look at it in the sense, well, we can't see how that could happen today, 
because we have gigantic mountain ranges like the Andes, which we flew over a couple of weeks ago. When you fly down the spine of the Andes heading to Peru and you enter into one of those very long canyons, by the way, the deepest canyon on earth is actually in the Peruvian Andes. It's over two miles deep. It's almost 10,000 feet deep. And so as you fly down through there, you you recognize, man, it'd take a lot of water to fill that. And then you start thinking to yourself, well, that's on dry land, and and there's a mountain there that's 20,000 feet high, and it goes down to the bottom of this canyon, and and then you think of the trenches in the ocean deeps, and you're going, wow, how could there be that much water on the face of the earth? There's an interesting set of calculations that are done. If you took the total amount of water that exists in the world's oceans today, and you flattened the earth out to where there was no mountain peak over 5,000 feet tall, the total coverage of the water that's in the oceans today would cover the tops of the tallest mountains at 5,000 feet by an additional 3,000 feet. So there's a lot of water even today sitting on the face of the earth, more than enough to cover the entire surface of the earth if you didn't have gigantic mountain ranges. Also uses some double superlatives here. You notice the, the, the overuse of the word all. It's almost like the sentence is improperly constructed. Uh, all of the high mountains under all of the heavens. And, and so it's, it's making a point here to say, look, there's nothing that escaped this. It says that all the flesh died. It's reminding us that there, there was no escaping it. And remember, that's what God said he was going to do. Every man died, every living substance died. Uh, The Hebrew word there, yakum, it it means a substance as in if you were to take uh, literally all that there is. And so in this case, all of plant life, in this case, all of animal life, all vegetation. God isn't going to let anything survive because that's what he said he's going to do. So your Bible plainly states that there's no reason to believe that God wasn't truthful when he wrote these words. And so it wasn't like there was, you know, some kind of, how many of you have seen the, the movie Shangri-La where there's, there's a supposed, you know, place in the middle of the Himalayas that actually is a subtropical environment and there's people that live there. And it's like it's been untouched for eons of time. When you think of, that's kind of how people look at this passage. And, well, it's just kind of like this, local flood in the Euphrates River Valley and you know maybe there was a lot of water there but it didn't cover the face of the earth and we'll look at the reasoning behind that so let's look at the length of this flood this flood was of biblical duration how many of you were alive in 1968 any of you in here 1968 we had here in Southern California the record up to this point in time for the most amount of rainfall that's ever fallen in the history of Southern California. And I believe the total for the month, months of January, February, and March were something on the order of 65 inches. Now, if you've lived here for a while, you know that our normal is about 14. And, and I remember driving through uh, parts of San Diego County, and you, you just look out, and there's these massive you know, fields that used to be river bottoms, completely inundated with water it rained for five days and it pretty much wiped out anything that was down at the bottom of a canyon and it only rained locally and it rained in the in the general region of a half an inch an hour 
It was not a significant amount of rainfall. It was only five days. And yet it destroyed bridges. It topped multiple dams to where they were worried about Sweetwater Reservoir and San Diego County breaking San Vicente Dam. They let half the water out of it to make room uh, for the floodwaters. It flooded Mission Valley, which at the time my family actually owned. It was crazy. Now imagine that the floodwaters, your Bible says, were on the earth for total 150 days. It rained like crazy for 40 of those days in amounts that your Bible calls a deluge so that all of a sudden you, you have something that's never occurred before. I don't even know what would happen here in Southern California if it rained for 40 days, especially if that rain was this type of rain. So God's saying that this is something that we haven't ever seen. For two and a half months, the fountains of the deep are busted up, and so you've got for 150 days total, you've got all this precipitation happening. So it, it would be over a year before there would be enough dry land for anything to even land on something. So this is a ton of water. And so people, the question that normally gets asked about this time when you're talking about this is, did Noah's uh, flood actually really cover the Himalayas? And again, remember why this question would come about. If you're a logical thinking person, that is a completely logical question given what we see in our world today, right? Because the Himalayas exist. The Andes exist. The Sierra Nevadas exist. So even here in California... You're talking about mountains that are roughly 14,500 feet tall at their highest points. You get down into the Andes, you're talking over 22,000 feet tall. You get to the Himalayas, you're talking 29,000 feet tall. So you're talking a whole bunch of vertical miles above sea level. And I will tell you, I'm deeply indebted to Dr. Henry Morris, uh, John Morris, his son, the scientists at Institute for Creation Research, because they, they've spent the last roughly five decades studying the geology of the surface of the earth to kind of take a look to see, you know, is that even, yeah, did they get covered or not? Mount Everest at 29,035 feet, that's a lot of water, isn't it? You imagine that the Marianas Deep is something on the order of 35,000 feet deep and you've got a mountain range that's 29,000 feet the other way. That's a lot of miles of water if you've got to cover both of those. But was the geology of the face of the earth the same then as it is now? That's actually the question. And Dr. Morris and a whole lot of other classically trained geologists, Dr. Morris studied at the Colorado school of mines he had a degree uh, in geology he was a geologist he was not just a creationist and so in studying the geology of the face of the earth he began to ask some very important questions and, and i would also remind you that up until about the 1600s late 1700s actually uh, for most people but mid 1600s uh, or the all the way to the late 1700s, there was almost no classically trained scientist on the face of the earth who did not believe the biblical account of Noah's flood. 
It was not until there was an alternative solution delivered, and that solution was, hey, maybe we don't need God. And so people began to look at the evidence and and say, well, what really is there that helps us understand these things? And so Dr. Morris kind of went backwards and, and began a long chain, and there are many scientists that have come after him since he's gone home to be with heaven, gone home to be in heaven. Um, But let's just use Mount Everest as an example. When you look at Mount Everest today, and Nupti in Lhotse, which is right next to it, um, the very top layers, in fact, the top 3,000 feet of Mount Everest itself is actually former ocean seafloor. It is completely covered with everything from trilobite fossils. It has cryonobacteria, green algae in it. Uh, It has all kinds of marine formations. It has crinoids and ostracods. These are all very commonly found if you find ocean, former ocean floor sediment anywhere in the world. That's what's going to be in it. And here's the problem. That's at the very top, and yet underneath it is igneous rock, rock that was pushed up, magma. So what does God's Word say? God's Word says that the fountains of the deep split open, and God set in motion some geologic forces that had not previously existed. And so when you look at the very highest mountains on earth, you find former seafloor. And yet underneath them, you find no evidence of it all being seafloor, but only part of it being seafloor. So how does that happen? You have to have something that was previously lower than it currently is that was actually covered with sediment. And then it is uplifted. Well, the problem is, remember as I said in one of our previous studies, All of those fossils, you can still find alive in the world today. So they do not necessarily have to be 485 to 545 million years old because you can still find those exact same animals alive on the face of the earth, including the unevolved blue-green algae. So you have this issue where you can look at it and say, well, What if that mountain wasn't there when the flood occurred? What if that mountain was actually flat at that time and it was thrust up after the fact that occurs throughout all of the Himalayas? It also occurs throughout all of the Andes. It occurs here in California in the Sierra Nevadas. There is crustal limestone and marine fossils at the highest altitudes of almost every major mountain range on the face of the earth. So it doesn't necessarily indicate anything other than at some point in time what is now the top of Mount Everest used to be the bottom of somebody's seafloor. Those sedimentary rocks divided into all kinds of layers which exist now at very high altitude could easily have been uh, much lower and thrust up at that time. So 
you see there there's scientific plausibility to the fact that these mountains were recently pushed up it doesn't have to be billions of years you see what happens to the mind that wants to do away with God is say, well, as tall as that mountain is, and it's been moving very slowly because in the last 150 years, interesting thing has happened, the top of Mount Everest has actually grown in altitude. So it's still being pushed up. So they take that small measurement, they extrapolate it out, and they run the numbers backwards to say how many eons does it have to do that in order for it to be that high well if your premise is god didn't do it that it was natural chance processes over very long periods of time then you need billions of years but if god says i'm going to lay all this sediment down on the face of the earth and then i'm going to cause the earth's crust itself to begin to break up he could thrust those mountains up in a moment and on top of them you're going to have what used to be former seafloor so don't be so quick to tell God he can't do something. And I would remind you that virtually all of the, the modern sciences that we have, and whether that's geology, um, almost every form of medicine, physics, chemistry, uh, biology, uh, you, you almost could go through the entire list of the basic sciences almost without exception, when you run all the way back to the founding of those disciplines of science, you're going to find somebody who believed at least in God and a vast majority of them were actually believers in Jesus Christ. And they believed that the world was created exactly like God said it was. And so it's really very recently uh, that we began to look at the world through an atheistic and a Darwinistic uh, worldview. And so in order to do that, You've got to factor in some form of geology that says this flood couldn't happen. And so in the early days of geology, when you take a look at uh, the world that we live in, you go back to roughly the 18th century uh, and go to Nicholas Steno, who's the father of stratigraphy, which is basically laying down of, of all kinds of layers on the Earth's surface. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? That's a stratified piece of rock, and you can look at it. You see all those lines that run through there, and you've got kaibab limestone and all these incredible colors that look so beautiful in the sunlight. He's the father of that science. He believed that God laid it down in the flood, uh, and though he was a, a pioneer, as he observed the rocks, he, he said it, it couldn't possibly have been chaotic. Because there are too many layers that exist for, in our case, multiple states, that there's no way in the world they would be all in the same layer and the same elevation unless they were laid down all at the same time. And so he simply used rationale to say, these layers must have been put down at one point in time and then moved after they were laid down. John Woodward, who, by the way, was Sir Isaac Newton's hand-picked successor, uh, at Cambridge University, as he's studying these same processes, came to the conclusion there's no way to explain it except that there was a universal flood over the face of the earth because there was too much uniformity in the structures of the layers of sedimentation that exist all over the face of the earth. In other words, you could take a layer that exists on the African continent and you can follow it over to the 
North and South American continent and go, that's the same layer that exists over there. So he said the only way that could happen is if it happened really fast. Because there's no way that the same sand and mud and junk that flowed on the African continent flowed over on the American continent, unless at some point in time they were at roughly the same elevation. And so you start to think about these things, and, and who comes along uh, but Charles Darwin? And he begins, to, he begins to hypothesize that, you know, perhaps animal life kind of came about from just a whole lot of time. And so he began to converse with a bunch of guys who were actually not scientists. And in fact, the, almost all of the fathers of, of, of geology, if you will, were amateurs. They were not scientists at all. Buckland himself was a theologian. Uh, Cuvier was an anatomist. Uh, Buffon was a lawyer. Uh, actually, Smith, who we have numbers of mountains that are named after him, and Charles Lyell, um, one, was a, one was also a lawyer. You have a journalist mixed in there. They basically were philosophizing a way to get rid of God. And so he said, let's figure something out. Let's look at this evidence and see if we can come up with a theory that allows for Charles Darwin's theory of evolution to be a possibility by giving enough time for evolution to have happened. You see, because you need a whole bunch of time to have even the slightest chance. Now, in saying that, I want to be really clear here. Most of modern science has long abandoned Darwinian evolution as the actual direct mechanism because it falls apart so quickly, especially in the chemical realm. Because chemicals don't organize themselves. They, they will not stay together over long periods of time. They're very unstable in that sense. But at this period of time, so in the mid-1800s, you've got all these guys saying, look, we just don't like God. We don't like being responsible to him. So if we can begin to look at these layers that have been laid down, and we can prove that they were here for billions of years, then all of a sudden you don't need God anymore. That's why, that's why Marx actually looked to dedicate his, his seminal work, Das Kapital, to Charles Darwin. So you have the world's foremost atheist uh, begin to begin to look at this new religion called Darwinian evolution, and it's like, look, we'll put these two things together. There were pockets of scientific resistance, uh, and so Darwin and Marx get together, and they come up with this concept of random chance and eons of time, and it, in essence, is is the alternative to believing what God said. And so all of these fathers of geology, and especially Charles Lyell, and it, you know, being a, a guy who loves to hike and backpack, I've hiked the total end of the high Sierras more than once. When you start in Tuolumne Meadows, which is in Yosemite National Park, and you're heading towards Ansel Adam Wilderness, the first canyon, when you leave the highway 120 uh, in Tuolumne Meadows, and you're heading south on the John Muir Trail, the first canyon is Lyle Canyon named after him. The first pass is Lyle Pass. The first glacier is Lyle Glacier. All of those things named after the fathers, in essence, of this geology 
that at the time was simply a way to explain away that God had created the earth. And so in order to kind of validate these things, he said, we've got to do something because all we're basing this on is what we see today. So if you go into a river bottom, you begin to look at how much silt gets deposited in a certain amount of time, and you measure that, you do your best to extrapolate it out, and so if you've got 20 feet of sandstone and some time and some heat, uh, it compresses into a layer, and so they would, they would calculate, in essence, by the sedimentation rates today, how much sand would have flown, uh, flowed across that area and then compressed and be compressed into rock, And so they came up basically with the dating system that way. They said, look, there's this much sandstone. Here's what we see being deposited by any given river. So this has to equal X number of millions of years. That was very, very, very loose and quite honestly, poor science. Because we have no way of knowing what happened in the past. We don't know if the flow rates were the same. And so they recognized that. So what they began to do is say, well, here, we've got another issue inside of some of these layers, especially in things like limestone, and very often in some forms of sandstone, we have fossils. Fossils are made out of bone. Bone is carbon. And so it must have absorbed what we call atmospheric carbon, which exists in the world today, and it's radioactive. And so that incredible science that we have today that we call carbon-14 dating comes along. And when Willard Libby invented that, uh, he began to look at how much atmospheric carbon exists and how nitrogen gets converted and and what is the remnant. And so he came up with the principle of half-life. He said if you leave this around uh, in about 5,700 years or so, you're going to have half of the amount of radioactive carbon you started with and you wait another 5,000 years and you'll have half of that. And effectively, in five cycles of that, you should lose all of it. So they began to look at all these fossils and said, how much radioactive carbon's left in these fossils? And when it got to zero, then that fossil was dated with an age of roughly 50,000 years. And so you put that in a sand layer and then you measure the distance of the rock that's between the next one And you say, okay, we've got this much rock and we've got a fossil here that's dated to X number of years old because you can only go to about 40,500 years. That's it. It's all the further that dating can go. So, well, we've got so much rock in between them, it's got to be millions of years. In other words, they use circular reasoning. They use the rock to date the fossils and the fossils to date the rock because you cannot carbon date anything you can't do it to any greater. You can maybe extend it out to 50,000 years. That's it. But everybody believes, oh, well, that got carbon dated to 5 million years old. It's an impossibility. You can't do it. Its half-life causes the radioactive carbon to disappear in less than 50,000 years. There'll be zero. And yet most people believe that we can carbon date fossils inside of rock to millions, if not billions, of years old. No, they use the rock to fill in the gaps. And the age of the rock is nothing more than educated guesswork. That's it. 
how much sand and how much siltation flowed over that area in a given period of years, measure it, and then extrapolate the data out. So when you think of someone telling you, well, that's millions or billions of years old, nothing can be accurately dated to millions or billions of years old by any means. It is actually an educated guess. And it's based on what we see today, not what was then. So just remember that. When somebody says they have proof, they don't have proof. As educated as that guess may be, it is still an educated guesswork. Accepted by an awful lot of scientists agreed. But it is not possible to radioactively date anything. You can't use spectral tomography. You can't use any type of science to date things to billions of years. You're simply looking in the present and then trying to push that back into the past to say if this happened now and it happens this way now, it has to have happened that way throughout the last, in our case for the earth, 3.7 billion years. And so now the earth is 3.7 billion years old. Unfortunately, the church got involved and says, well, these guys are really smart. And they are. And I want to be really careful here. These are, these are brilliant people. And their mathematics generally is flawless. The problem is it starts with presuppositions that just say that, eh, the world has to have always been like this. Well, if God churned up the evidence in a flood, it didn't have to always be that way. You know, what if that volcano used to not be there a few thousand years ago? What if that crustal plate started moving 10,000 years ago? Maybe 7,000 years ago. What if all the evidence that you're looking at today not only was not like it is now, it was something completely different? Well, your Bible says it was something completely different. And so some Christians began to say, well, we just can't fight this, so let's join them. And so they took out of context 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, and they began to come up with all kinds of theories, and we're going to look at them very quickly tonight uh, just to kind of give you a sense of some of the ways that that... It, when, we, when we use biblical text, we use a study method called exegesis. We want to draw out of what the text actually says, its true meaning. It's called exegeting the text. And so in this sense, you take this verse and you pull it out of its context... You, you make it mean something that it doesn't mean anywhere else in, in all of Scripture, that somehow this particular day that's being described here is no longer a solar day. And notice what it says. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. In other words, they began to say, well, what if every day of creation was thousands of years? What if there were actually billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2? And so they began to try and help God out by just inserting a gap in there. And so it became, became known as the gap theory. It ostensibly just simply permitted them to put Darwin's evolution right into the Bible. 
The only problem is, every time that you use the word yom in the entire Bible, some 2,200 times, with the exception of four, it means a solar day. And every time in the context it's not used to mean a solar day, it's very clear that it is actually an eon or an age. It's a period of time. And so instead of believing what the Bible plainly states, they began to say, well, it couldn't possibly mean that, even though God defines, remember, that in Genesis chapter 1, on the morning and the evening, or the evening and the morning were the first day. So God actually defines all of those days for us during creation. He says, they're solar days. They're one rotation of the earth. And so trying to help God out actually ends up causing an awful lot of Christians to doubt whether the Bible is true. And that's the real issue with the book of Genesis for me. You know, I I try to leave people room to talk about these subjects because I think it's important that we do. But at the end of the day, if we just talk about the Bible and we talk about science and we begin to disbelieve what Scripture actually says, where does that end? Where do we stop trusting God? Do we stop trusting God when you get to the New Testament? Do we start trusting God when you get to the New Testament? Maybe we don't believe anything in the Old Testament. Or maybe we just believe that this is a hypothetical story in Genesis. You see, here's the problem. The first prophetic word found in the Bible is actually in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So do we believe that that's a picture of the coming Jesus? Or do we not believe it? You see, it's a dangerous, very slippery slope for we mere humans to start saying to God, well, you know that whole Genesis thing, I just don't believe that. That whole flood thing, I just don't think it could happen. And so man attempts to reconcile, in essence, these scientific theories with the Bible. And again, I want to be very careful here. Brilliant scientists disagree on these things, but they disagree on them based on the science. Generally speaking, when someone honors the Word of God then they have an opinion about what Genesis actually teaches. And so now all of a sudden, you have to come up with alternate ways to reconcile the Genesis text with the modern world that we live in. So what do we do? We do things like theistic evolution. Theistic evolution was put into place basically as a way to say, well, God probably used evolution. Anybody in here heard that? I have. I've talked to people for a lot of times. You know, I'm just sitting there having conversation with them. It's like, so how do you think we got here? And if they're a Christian, very often they'll say, well, I think God used evolution. If he did, you have a problem with your Bible. Because here's what your Bible says. That through one man's sin, that's Adam, death entered into the world. So where do you put the billions of years of death and dying if death itself didn't come into the world until Adam sinned roughly 7,000 years ago? You see, now you've got a choice of believing is the Bible accurate or is it not accurate? 
The other thing is, why would God use evolution in the first place? Have you ever thought of that? Have you thought, well, maybe God just uses evolution? Have you thought why he would allow countless organisms to exist for perhaps billions of years only to suffer and die in some state of uncompleteness while he's working out through evolution their various stages of evolution so that they can finally become a frog? In other words, it makes God look like he's a bumbling fool. Instead of completing the creation as the Bible says, it says, well, I didn't actually create it. I kind of threw a whole bunch of matter into one place and I energized it and I turned it loose on its own and whatever happens, happens. It doesn't even make any sense to a Christian that God would use death, destruction, and chaos as a way to put together this incredible world that we see today. A biblical record of creation says that God created everything in its kind. In other words, complete and ready to replicate. When you think about you as a human being, if you ever commit a crime, now I'm not encouraging you to commit a crime. If you ever commit a crime and you happen to leave behind on the murder weapon, let's just use an extreme one, any of your DNA you are going to prison. Why? Because your DNA is unique out of all the 7 billion people nearly on the planet Earth, you're the only one that has your DNA. So if God is so careful as to create humankind to self-heal, in other words, you can die, you know your body diagnoses things that are wrong. Amen? Boys love this. They're called scabs. You get cut, you get a little lymphatic fluid, some platelets, a little blood cell, creates a scab. Boys best playthings. But your body knows how to do that. When did your body learn how to do that if you were random chance processes over millions of years? When did it figure out, you know, hey, I need to fix that? Was it before or after you bled out? When did your body all of a sudden decide that your platelets have to have certain chemical compounds to flow through your blood vessels, but if you don't have those chemicals, they won't flow, but if you expose them to air, they will harden instantaneously. When did that happen? So it's the old chicken and the egg argument. Which came first? The arteries, the vessels, the veins... The heart, the blood itself, the ability to clot, the ability to identify the fact you got a hole in your body someplace. When did the, that's all stored in your DNA. And yours is unique to you. That doesn't sound like a bumbling idiot who took billions of years. It sounds like somebody who fearfully and wonderfully made you and created you exactly as you are, unique and wonderful in all of the universe. Amen? So, so the science, you see, people start to say, well, I just, you know, my professor said this, and I'm, I'm not actually saying to you that your professor is dumb. He's not. She's not. 
They studied a long time. They have invested a tremendous amount of mental capital and a whole lot of money, by the way. But the bottom line is, if you start with the premise there is no God, you set about to prove there is no God. And so you better have a very elaborate way to explain the truths that exist in our world today. And here's how you do it. You make the system so complex that it absolutely cannot be traced back to the beginning. And when you get there, you just skip over the first few steps. Because the first few steps are somehow some little thing, probably a blue-green algae, began to divide and split and eventually become you. But a whole lot of you had to die for billions of years. A whole lot of frogs died, and a whole lot of birds died, and a whole lot of reptiles died, and a whole lot of blue-green algae died. That makes God the author of death. And He's the author of life. So whether you take the day-age theory or the gap theory or theistic evolution or even progressive creation, which is kind of hybridization of all of those things, it's like, well, God used a little of this and a little of that. At the end of the day, isn't it just a little bit simpler to just simply say in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so when you look at what the flood did, God says, I created the earth, and then I destroyed it by covering it with water. And in the process of covering it with, with water, massive quantities of living things died. Those massive quantities of living things ought to be found underneath a whole bunch of sediment. And here's the strange thing about fossils. In order for something to become a fossil... It doesn't just stand there in the mud for 50 years waiting to become a fossil. It has to be buried nearly instantaneously. The oxygen has to be taken out of the environment, otherwise it will decompose. What's the easiest way to do that? Bury it with a whole lot of sediment. Have it float on water, get waterlogged, sink to the bottom of that sea and then all of the sand and sediment and mud and everything that's in this churned up mixture that's all over the face of the earth begins to settle out burying every last one of those things and the things that would be on top would guess what be the largest animals with the most body mass with the most air in them they would float the longest and they would not sink the furthest what would be on the bottom the most dense things, the things that died first. So when you look at the fossil record, guess what you find? Exactly that. The mammals are on top. So the geologists to say that God doesn't exist, well, look, the mammals were created, they, they came about last. No, they just floated longer. They sunk a whole lot less quickly than a bunch of tiny things that sunk very quickly. And so down at the bottom, you have things that were already in the water, amphibians, fish, followed by birds, followed by exactly what your Bible says, all the creeping things, and finally man, because man would have struggled for a very long time. 
And so mankind ends up in the top of that. What do you see in the fossil record? At the very top is mankind. That's why you find so very few human fossils anywhere in the world. Why am I telling you all this? You can trust your Bible. A day's a day. When God says it took a day, it took a day. God's not a liar. He's not a deceiver. He's not in to try and put one over on you. The very names of the ages, when you think about fossilized remains around the world, the study of paleontology, those things that are fossils anywhere in the world. It's interesting, even the, the eras, the Paleozoic era, just simply means ancient life. That's all it means. The Mesozoic means intermediate life. The Cenozoic means recent life. In other words, they're actually naming them based on their own assumption that those things are younger or older than the other things that they find. There's actually no science in it at all because you can't date the fossils themselves. All you can do is look at the rock. And if you look at the rock and you say, well, God didn't destroy the earth, then you have to come up with some other reason for why things are the way they are. What is that reason? Billions of years, a whole bunch of time, very slow processes, and a lot of chaos. When in fact God did something in a very short period of time, 150 days, churned up the whole surface of the earth, and then allowed those waters to settle out. All that sedimentation occurred in one year. All those dead things buried by all that sediment. And guess what? You can find them on the top of Mount Everest. God's telling the truth. Some people may not like that conclusion. But if you look at the evidence, that theory is every bit as reasonable as there are billions of years indicated because there's so much rock. Trust the Lord. Trust His Word. When you read your Bible, read it as truth because that's what it is. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll pray. Worship team's going to come back out and lead us in a final song. God loves us. Amen? Don't forget this is a love letter. He's telling you what He tells you because He loves you. And He doesn't want you to be duped. See, your Bible says in the last days the very last days, and men will become lovers of themselves. And they'll ultimately exchange that which is foolish for the truth. They'll exchange the truth for a lie. Don't let that be you. We may not be able to explain everything, but we have enough in front of us in our world to say, you know what, I have another theory about those things. And it lines up with God's Word. Amen. Father, thank you for tonight. Pray that you'd encourage and strengthen your people. Bless us, Lord. Uh, we desire to see your kingdom come, your will be done. Thank you, Lord, for our faith, which is reasonable. Lord, it's reasonable in light of the evidence. And God, we just ask that you would just strengthen us as we share with people, Lord, your goodness. How uh, we can share with confidence 
Uh, there's nothing that we believe uh, that is put to rest in some other way by science. Lord, science actually validates what we believe. And so bless us, Lord, as your people in Jesus' name. Amen.